All right, we are moving through the Gospel of Mark, a section at a time. We're beginning chapter 2 today, but before we go there, I want to ask you a few questions. They are all related questions with really the same basic answer, but let me approach the subject this way. That is the question, what, what is the most unique or distinctive aspect of Bible Christianity? What is it that sets Bible Christianity apart from all of the religions of the world, including forms of Christianity that are not Bible-based? And before we answer, I know you're thinking about that, just as a, as a reminder, we just want to say that we use, we use the term Bible Christianity to identify what we are. The word Christian was first used in the book of Acts to describe people who were following Jesus Christ. It was not a term that the followers of Jesus Christ came up with. The early disciples of Jesus didn't get together one Sunday afternoon after church and decide that they needed a name. Hey, let's call ourselves Christians. That's not the way that turned out. The early followers of the Lord Jesus called themselves the brethren or disciples or fellow saints, which is another interesting word study on saints, which we won't even begin to touch today. Other people in and around Jerusalem called them the followers of the way or the people of the way. But Christian was a name given to them by Greeks who were not followers of the Lord Jesus. The Greeks prided themselves on their independent thinking, supposedly. They nicknamed anyone that they thought was narrow-minded. And so when the gospel began to spread through the Roman Empire, and non-Jews, Gentiles in large numbers, began following the Lord Jesus, and began acting and living like Him, with their lives kind of revolving around Him, the Greeks gave them the, the mocking nickname, Christian meaning the party of Christ, or those who follow Christ or are loyal to Christ. And that nickname was originally meant as an insult. To today, the term Christian is a loaded word with lots of negative baggage. So we don't use it by ourselves, just all by itself, when we try to identify what we are. We add the word Bible to it, Bible Christianity, or I am a Bible-believing Christian, which doesn't solve all of the problems of the term, but it is our attempt to try to identify what we believe. And given all of the hostility <coughs> excuse me, and, and resistance to Jesus Christ and his message, I'm not sure that there would be any term that would be a perfect description, but, but we try when we call ourselves Bible-believing Christians or we talk about being a part of Bible Christianity. So back to our question, what is the most unique or distinctive aspect of Bible Christianity? What, what is it that sets Bible Christianity apart from all the religions of the world, including forms of Christianity which are not Bible-based, and there are actually many of those? Some people might say, well, Jesus elevated the social status of women in the ancient world. That would be true. Others might say, well, Bible Christianity created this, this ethical standard, this moral standard that teaches us to resist lying and cheating and stealing and murdering. That would also be true. Other people with a religious background would say, well, Christ one of Christianity's greatest legacies is to demonstrate sacrificial love for people or to give people fulfillment in life. Or to teach people social responsibility, meaning not just caring about yourself, but caring, caring about society in general. And it is correct that in the pages of Scripture, there is a moral standard. 
There is an ethical standard. It is correct that Christians should be marked by love and peace and happiness. There is fulfillment. There is purpose. There is satisfaction in Bible Christianity. But none of those things are the greatest benefit or the most unique aspect of Bible Christianity. They They are simply byproducts of our unique distinctive. There's one thing that the biblical gospel offers that is unique and distinctive from all other religions on the planet. Bible Christianity addresses man's greatest need and offers a definite solution. There are religions out there that offer ethics and morality and social responsibility and family values and a certain amount of love and peace, maybe some fulfillment and satisfaction. But what actually is man's greatest need? Man's greatest need is forgiveness. Man's greatest need is to know who his creator is and how to be made right with him. How can I know what will happen to me when I die? How can I know that all will be well when I stand before my my creator? I I need forgiveness. Everybody knows that, that we are not perfect. None of us are perfect. Baseball players know that nobody bats a thousand. Hockey players know that, that hat tricks are very rare. Football players know that every, every quarterback eventually throws an interception. Every receiver eventually drops the ball. Every running back eventually fumbles. Every kicker eventually misses a field goal. No basketball player gets a triple-double every game. And, and, and in the game of life, everyone makes mistakes, and many of those mistakes have moral implications which makes them sin. We all have self-centered motives in certain areas. Our thoughts and our opinions do not line up with God's truth. And our actions and our lifestyles are not always in line with God's word. No one is perfect, and we all know that. But you see, our Creator's standard to enter into His presence for all of eternity is perfection. Nothing unholy can enter heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Revelation 21-27 says, Nothing unholy, nothing that defiles can enter into the presence of God. So in order to enter into the presence of God, we we have to have perfection. And and we, we desperately need forgiveness. That's the only way we can get it. That's our only hope. And Bible Christianity offers the solution to our greatest need, complete forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the point of His earthly life. That was the point of His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. That that is the unique distinguishing mark of Bible Christianity. And there is no other faith on the planet that offers free forgiveness with no works included. Nothing you have to pay or earn. You can put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Our faith offers free forgiveness right from our Creator. God very uniquely presents Himself in the Scripture as a God who is willing to forgive, a God who is eager to forgive, a God who is by nature compassionate and kind and loving and merciful, and He's actually seeking to rescue sinners from His own judgment. Think about that for a moment. God has to judge sin, and yet He is is absolutely always seeking to rescue sinners from His own judgment. 
That's the message of the biblical gospel, and it is unique among all of the belief systems in the history of the world. Let me show you just a couple of verses of Scripture. We'll be to Mark 2 in just a moment. Look at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We're just going to extract a couple of phrases right out of the middle of a, of a sermon in Acts chapter 13. The Apostle Paul is preaching here. Acts chapter 13, and I just want to show you a couple of verses here. Verse 38 and verse 39. The Apostle Paul is preaching. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at what he says in Acts 13, verse 38. Therefore be it known to you, brethren, that through this man, and if you look at the context, he's talking about Jesus, through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, by Christ, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. In other words, he said, forgiveness of sins is what is coming through Jesus Christ, and through him you can be justified. That means your slate can be cleaned from everything that you couldn't ever be cleaned from by trying to keep the law. So the Apostle Paul says, this is the core message of what I'm preaching. Jesus Christ came to forgive people's sins. That's, that, is, that is unique in all the religions of the world. And he said, through Him, through Jesus Christ, when you believe, when you put your faith in Him, you can be justified, that is, your slate can be wiped clean from, from everything that the law of Moses could never clean you from. Look at the book of Ephesians. Just turn a few pages. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. I'm going to start to read in verse 3. I'm going to go up to verse 7. Our, our core key, our, our key phrase we're looking for is in verse 7. By the way, this is one of the longest sentences in the New Testament. If you're into Bible trivia... The Apostle Paul starts writing a sentence in verse 3, and he doesn't put a period at the end of it until verse 14. So he goes from verse 3 all the way to verse 14. It's all one sentence. Clause after clause after clause after clause. We won't read the whole thing, but just, just, for, just for fun and interest, the longest sentence in the New Testament. And here we go. Let's start to read in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. And look at verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Wow, is verse 7 a bombshell verse or what? In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. That is absolutely beautiful. That is the message of Bible Christianity. 
God will forgive your sins and He is willing to forgive. That's the kind of God He is. And it's not just in the New Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. I won't have you take the time to turn to all these verses, but let me just read them to you. I, I typed them all out so I can just read them to you. If you want to write the references down, you, you can look at them. Just a few of them. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. God is having Moses make two new tablets of stone on which to write the Ten Commandments because, you remember, Moses broke the first two the first two tablets. And God descends in a cloud on Mount Sinai to give the law to, to Moses, the Ten Commandments, a second time. And this is how God introduces himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, the word Yahweh, the, that covenant name of God, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the way God introduces himself to Moses for the second giving of the Ten Commandments. Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 16 and 17 as the people are confessing their sins before the presence of the Lord. They, they, they are praying and they say, Our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commands, but you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness. That's Nehemiah 9, 16 and 17. And then we've got those well-known, beautiful verses in Psalm 103. The whole chapter of Psalm 103 is fantastic. But in verse 11 and 12, well, you, you probably heard the phrase, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. And I've often said to folks, how far is the east is from the west? You can't measure that. And I'm so thankful God didn't say how far is the north from the south, because you can measure that. You can measure the distance from the north pole to the south pole. If you go to the north pole and you start going south, you go south, 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 8,000 and something miles, you get to the south pole, then every direction you go is north. But when you go east, you could go east forever and never start going west. You could go west around the world and around the world and around the world, and you'd never start going east. So God didn't say, I separated your sins from you as far as the north is from the south. He said, I separated as far as the east is from the west. You can't even, you can't even figure out how far I moved your transgressions away from you. That's a beautiful thought. In Isaiah chapter 38, verse 17, King Hezekiah is praying a prayer of thankfulness to God. He thought he was going to die. God extended his life 15 years. And as he prays this prayer of thankfulness to God, he says in Isaiah 38, 17, King Hezekiah says to God, You have cast all my sins behind your back. Hmm. And that great passage, Isaiah 43 and verse 25, God, God is challenging His people to stop being unfaithful. And in one of the greatest gospel statements in the Old Testament, Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. You see, forgiveness is so incredibly amazing. Sin is an offense to God. 
God is perfectly holy and pure and righteous. Sin is a slap in God's face. And God's justice demands that sin has to be paid for. And yet He offers forgiveness to anyone who will repent. And the reason why God can offer forgiveness is because His justice has been satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. He was a substitute for the sinner. He died in the sinner's place. And all of the sins of everyone for all time who will ever repent and believe were placed on Christ on the cross. And He died in our place, satisfying the justice of God. Only God can do that. When He created the world, He made the rules. He's the lawgiver. He's the judge. And at the end of time, He'll be the executioner. He is the one who is offended by our sins. And He is the only one who has the right to eternally forgive our sins. Jesus Christ bought that right to eternally forgive when He lived a sinless, perfect life and died in our place. He alone is worthy. He alone is able to freely forgive. And that is the unique distinguishing feature of Bible Christianity. And there's nothing anywhere in any world religion, anywhere on the planet that can compare to forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sin comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now to Mark chapter 2. Say, wow, Larry, what was that all about? Well, I'll tell you what it's all about. Mark chapter 2 is a story of forgiveness. Mark chapter 2. There's 12 verses here. We're just going to read 12 verses. I'm going to talk about these things, but this, this is the focus issue. Forgiveness. Jesus heals a man who's paralyzed, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is forgiveness. Let's read this, the first 12 verses, Mark 2. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. I mean, he's back to Peter and Andrew's house where he stayed there in Capernaum. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. When, when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Anytime you read the Gospels or the book of Acts or certain personal portions of the teaching letters in the end of the New Testament, it's always good to picture the story in your mind. What is happening? Who is involved? Who is speaking? 
If you were there as an observer, if you were there as an eyewitness, what would you be seeing? And that's the way we want to look at this event today. You've got crowds of people in and around the house. You have religious leaders. You have the Lord Jesus. You have a paralyzed man who's being carried by four friends. You have some interesting statements being made by Jesus. There are many, many perspectives in the story that a good observer will want to take note of, and we will take note of them. But, but remember that the key issue in this whole story is the issue of forgiveness. Jesus has been out in the countryside for some time. You may remember him last week. He's been out for a, a few weeks at least because the crowds were hounding him, mobbing him everywhere he goes. They're still coming to him out in the countryside, we saw last week. But it's apparently a little easier to manage the crowds outside the city than jammed into it. But after a few weeks, finally Jesus comes, comes back to, to, uh, to Capernaum. And we presume to the house of Peter and Andrew, where he was staying back in chapter 1. People find out about it. Oh, Jesus is back in town. And, and the, the mob arrives. And inside the house is jam-packed. All around the doorway, there's this crowd. What is Jesus doing? He's preaching the word to them. That's what it says here. He said, and he preached the word to them, it says in verse 2. He's doing what top-notch rabbis do. He's doing it with great authorities, we saw in chapter 1. But do you think that the crowds that have mobbed the house to hear him preach, I mean, do you think that's why they mobbed the house? you think they came in order to hear him preach? Probably not. I think they are there hoping to see another miraculous display of spiritual power. That's what crowds tend to do. We don't see crowds becoming Jesus' disciples. We see them coming to see the display of power, but we don't see crowds of people coming to be his disciples. You remember when Jesus ascended into heaven and he told his disciples, wait in the upper room until the, the Holy Spirit descends and you see have power from on high? You know how many people were there? You remember how many people were there in Acts 1? 120. After all of Jesus' preaching, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people heard him preach and saw his miracles. When he actually left this earth to go back to heaven, there's 120 disciples waiting for him, waiting for the Spirit to fall. Out of tens of thousands of people heard him preach. So we don't see crowds becoming Jesus' disciples. We just see them coming to see the show, so to speak. Remember the famous story of the feeding of the 5,000, as we call it? That after Jesus fed 5,000 people, the crowds followed him around to the other side of the lake. And when Jesus saw them, he said, you guys didn't come to hear me preach. You just came because I fed you lunch yesterday. They didn't come for the word, they just came for the food. Lots of people like that today. Another interesting clue about the crowd is when the four guys, you notice, when the four guys show up carrying, carrying their paralyzed friend, nobody would let them get through to get to Jesus. You'd think, oh man, here's a guy paralyzed, his friend, here, here let's here, step aside, let, let, let him come through. No, that's not what they did. They just, they just stood there. Oh, you know the crowd? Yeah. Oh yeah? Wait, wait your turn. It was a very self-serving, self-centered crowd. You might think they'd say, let, them, let these guys get their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Maybe he can heal him. But no, they couldn't get anywhere near Jesus. It was like, I was here first. I have needs too. I'm not giving up my spot. Take a ticket, pal. Wait your turn. Maybe you'll make it by sundown. I'm not losing my spot in line for a miracle. 
It was a very self-serving, self-centered crowd. And when it's over, when the whole thing's all over, the crowd does not fall down at Jesus' feet and say, My Lord and my God, forgive me. The crowd just says, Wow, never seen anything like this before. It was a self-serving, self-centered crowd. But we also see the very incredible determination of the four friends. <clears throat> they can't get through the crowd. Okay, we'll take the high road. Let's go to the roof. Houses in that day were flat roofed, and after the walls went up, they would lay timbers across the opening. They would take various types of thatch that would be laid on the timbers, and then there would be a combination of, of clay-baked roof tiles and a layer of clay to seal the tiles that would be on top. The stairway to the roof of a, 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 of a house was always on the outside. It wasn't inside the house. It was on the outside of the house. And so these unnamed heroes, these four unnamed heroes, carried their pal up the back stairs and onto the roof. Now remember, this was not their house. This was Peter and Andrew's house. And they apparently, listening to Jesus teach or whatever, they made some kind of guess as to where Jesus was, and then they start disassembling the roof tiles to make a hole. And we're talking about a hole big enough to lower the cot down by four ropes. They're not just knocking this hole in there like, like this big around to, to turn the guy up on end and lower him down. They're knocking a hole big enough to put the whole cot through. Maybe three feet by six feet. So what would you think if somebody climbed up on your roof and started, started ripping a three-foot-by-six-foot hole in your roof? That's what they're doing. I think, wow, what incredible friends. I wonder if they repatched the hole they made after they was all over. But they were determined to get their friend to Jesus. If he was lying on a bed paralyzed, then it would be safe to assume that he may have been what we would call a quadriplegic, totally incapacitated. One writer commenting on this passage, speaking about the four friends, he said, Blessed are the desperate. To which I would add, blessed are the dedicated. Blessed are the determined, who are willing to do virtually anything to bring their friend and loved ones to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about that with me for just a moment. What, what are we willing to do to bring our loved ones to Christ? When I was a teenager, there was a fellow in our church, young family man, I think he was in his 30s. He was tragically killed in an accident. He was hit by a drunk driver as he walked down the street. He was on the sidewalk. A guy went through a light up on the sidewalk and he hit him. And as we were told a little bit later, he hit him so hard it knocked him right out of his shoes, killed him instantly. At his funeral, it was revealed by his family that he had become so burdened about his lost relatives, he'd been witnessing to them for several years, that he had prayed just a few weeks before that. He had prayed that, that, that God would do anything necessary to reach them for Christ, even if it meant him dying. That's a very brave and risky prayer. Within a few weeks of his funeral, interestingly, there had been quite a number of his relatives. Don't remember the exact number after all these years. You know, it's been a long time since I was a teenager. I don't remember the, the exact number who had professed faith in the Lord Jesus, but it wasn't just two. It was, it was a significant number. Now, I'm not saying that that's what we should all go do. That was something God laid on his heart. That was, some, that was a, a, a commitment that he was willing to make. And apparently God knew his heart that he was truly willing. And that's what God chose to use to bring many people in his family to the Lord. The Apostle Paul in Romans 10 and verse 1 makes a very similar statement. 
But I'm not saying this is what we, we should all do necessarily. But what I am asking is this. What are we willing to do to try to bring people to Jesus? What risk are we willing to take? What, what inconvenience are we willing to endure? What commitment are we willing to make? To tear a hole in somebody else's roof and then presumably patch it or pay for the repair so I can get my friend to Jesus? How determined are we to spread the gospel? How dedicated are we to the task of representing Jesus Christ to the world? What are we willing to do to bring our loved ones to Christ? And then notice there in verse, verse 5, it says, Jesus sees their faith. When Jesus sees their faith, and I had asked myself, well, who's, who is there? Who, who, who's the them? Well, I believe them is all five of them, the paralyzed fellow and his four friends. You know, I can't imagine that the paralyzed fellow told his friends, y'all just don't bother with me. I mean, Jesus had been healing people all over everywhere. And remember when we talked about healing here a couple of weeks ago, remember, Jesus always has a 100% success rate. The gospel writers don't give the backstory. But, uh, but I think the paralyzed fellow and his four friends are determined to get to Jesus because they are totally convinced that he can do something. In the culture of the day, severe illness and disease and disability were always connected to sin in someone's life. You remember the story in John 9 where they saw the man blind from birth and Jesus' disciples said to him, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Very common belief of that day. And I'm sure the paralyzed man laying there as a quadriplegic on the cot with his friends carrying him around, he's probably trying to think, what in the world did I do? I mean, what, what have I done? Why, why has this happened to me? And so when Jesus sees the paralyzed fellow, he is actually giving him great relief of soul when he says, you are forgiven. I'm sure the paralyzed man's been curious why, why he's, he's suffering like this. And if he's dying, which is a very real possibility given his condition in those days, you wouldn't live a long time as a quadriplegic. Jesus is giving him great relief to let him know that he is forgiven because that's what Jesus does. He forgives sin. And notice that the paralyzed man didn't do anything. Jesus sees his faith. He didn't do anything except trust who Jesus was and, 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 and what he could do. But then we have the self-righteous theologians. A lot of those around today, too. There were scribes in attendance, it said in verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there. This story, by the way, is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke also says there were some Pharisees there with the scribes. Here Mark just mentions the scribes. They were in attendance listening to Jesus teach. Scribes in the first century were what we would call Old Testament scholars. They made copies of the Scripture. They researched the Scriptures as they were copying if you spent your whole life reading scrolls of Scripture and making copies of them, you were pretty familiar with the Old Testament. Scribes were kind of the go-to guys with questions about the Word of God. So when Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven you, little warning lights start going off in their brains. What? What? What did he say? And, and you know, that's actually a good thing. One of my hopes and prayers for all of you is that you will be grounded enough 
in the Word of God that when you hear something that's kind of off the mark, little warning lights will go off in your mind and you won't just swallow everything hook, line, and sinker without checking it out in the Scriptures. But these guys are thinking, wait, 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 wait a minute. This, this guy's blaspheming God. He can't forgive sin. Nobody can forgive sin except God. And you know what? They're right. Nobody can forgive sin except God. There is no human being on this planet who can forgive your sin. Forgiveness only comes from God. Our sin is a violation of God's law and His standards and His holiness. So He's the only one who can blot it out or, or, or wipe away all those violations. Sin is against God, so nobody can forgive sin except God. So the scribes are right. Who can forgive sin but God only? But we must also remember that a person can be theologically correct and can still be spiritually blind. You can have right doctrine and still be lost in sin. You can grow up in church and hear preaching every single week of your life and hear Bible lesson after Bible lesson after Bible lesson. You can still be lost. You can answer all the right questions and you can know the right doctrine and you can still be lost. You can be theologically correct and still be spiritually blind. These guys were. They understood the Bible. But they, but they were blind. Because they, they, they had the facts right, but they missed the truth that was literally looking them in the face. Did, did it occur to you as, as we read through this? Jesus read their minds. Who can do that except God? And it goes right past them. Because they're spiritually blind. It doesn't seem to occur to them that this rabbi just told them what they were thinking. Now, I can't read your mind. You can't read my mind. And we should probably be thankful that other human beings can't read our minds. Because if they could, we'd be in a lot more trouble than we already get into. I mean, can you imagine, husbands, what would happen to you if your wife and your kids knew everything that went through your mind? Huh? Wives, can you imagine what would happen if your husbands knew everything that went through your mind? Parents, can you, can you wonder what your kids would be thinking if they knew everything you were thinking? Hey, I mean, it's probably the grace of God that other human beings can't read our minds. Okay, but God can. Jesus read their minds. It's something else that only God can do, and they are completely blind to it. So Jesus looks at these scribes and he says, Okay, fellas, I know what you're thinking. And I'm going to ask you, which is easier to say, not easier to do, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to tell a quadriplegic to get up and walk? Just so you know, he says, that I have the power on earth to forgive sin, I'm going to look at this guy, I'm going to say, get up, roll up your bed, and go home. And he does. And the self-centered crowd who wouldn't part to let him in, parts to let him out. And rather than falling on their knees before Jesus, recognizing who he is and crying out, My Lord and my God, forgive me, I'm a sinner too. They say, Wow, yeah, we'll give God glory for that. Never seen anything like that before. But you know what? That, that's not saving faith. They're on the right road, but they're not there yet. See, as we've seen today, that there are lots of life applications for us from these 12 little verses. 
But the bottom line, the foundation of this entire recorded event is the issue of forgiveness. Jesus is proving that he has the authority to forgive sin. He is God in human form. He is revealing who he is and what he has come to do. Jesus Christ bought the right to eternally forgive when he lived a sinless, perfect life and died in our place. And he alone is worthy and he alone is able to freely forgive. And that, again, is the most unique and distinguishing feature of Bible Christianity. And there is nothing in any world religion anywhere on the planet that can compare with that forgiveness of sin comes to us by God's grace through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and my final question to you this morning is this are you absolutely certain that Jesus has forgiven your sin if you're not I pray you'll make sure today because Jesus can also say to you son or daughter your sins are forgiven but you've got to run to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask You to open our hearts. We know it is so easy for in this religious world, so many people have been around churches, they've been around religions, they just think everything's all the same. And it's all one God, and we all worship Him, and we're all going the same direction, on the same road, and the same path, just, just different angles. And yet we know, Lord, that is so unbiblical and so not true. There is one unique feature of the Bible way, and that is forgiveness and assurance that we can be with our Creator when this life is over. Thank you, Father, for sending the Lord Jesus Christ who bought the right to eternally forgive when He died on the cross for our sin. We know, Father, we could, if we were there to see that miracle that Jesus did, if we were there from what, to see what we read today, we could very easily be in that crowd. We could very easily be one of the scribes. We could also very easily be one of the friends who had such incredible faith in who Jesus was that they were willing to do anything to get their friend to Jesus. Help us, we pray, Father, to be what you want us to be. May we be better witnesses for you. And Lord, if there's any here who are not absolutely certain that they know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they have been forgiven, I pray they will make certain this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.